The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. The text we're looking at today describes Yeshua's final trip into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now this story appears in all four Gospels and is traditionally called the Triumphal Entry. I'm not sure how it got that name. Triumphal means a celebration of great victory or achievement. So I think this story would be more accurately called the Tragic Entry. Because the people didn't know who Yeshua was. They wanted a warrior Messiah. And when they realized that wasn't Yeshua, their shouts went from Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify Him just a few days later. As Yeshua enters the city, Luke tells us that He weeps over it because they did not recognize their Messiah. And they would therefore be judged by Him in AD 70. So this entry into Jerusalem is not triumphant, really. It is tragic. They don't know who He is. They're rejecting their King because they want something else. Now, this story of His entry appears in all four of the Gospels. Lazarus' account is shorter than the ones in the Synoptics. Many things are left out by Him that we find in the other accounts. And we have to understand that each of the Gospel writers has his own purpose for what he writes. And the differences exist between them because they're sharing from different angles. Lazarus' account seems to be very much motivated by theological purposes. Matthew and Mark place Christ's entry into Jerusalem before Mary's anointing of Yeshua in Simon's house. However, Lazarus' order is probably the chronological one in view of his time references, and plus the fact Matthew and Mark frequently altered the chronology uh, because of the thematic purposes that they had. So, again, we look at the different Gospels, we see things a little bit differently. Let's review here for a second the context that we're looking at. Lazarus had died. His sisters sent word to Yeshua. Our brother is sick. The Lord waited around until Lazarus was dead. Then he goes there. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Well, Yeshua heals him, raises him from the dead, brings him out of the tomb. And because of that, the Jewish leadership want to kill him. Because, you know, when you raise people from the dead, your popularity kind of increases. And so they didn't like that at all, so they wanted him dead. So Yeshua leaves there. He goes to a region near the wilderness just to be away for a while. And in chapter 12 tells us that six days before the Passover, Yeshua returns to Bethany. Now this is six days before His death that happens on this Passover. Well, there's a supper made for Him there in the home of a leper that had been healed by the name of Simon. And Simon's family, I believe, was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were Simon's children. Plus, the disciples were there that were traveling with Him and they're having this supper. Uh, They're there to celebrate the Lord. They're there because of the resurrection of Lazarus. And during this supper, Mary, in an extravagant 
expression of worship. To demonstrate her love for her Lord, she breaks this alabaster jar of pure nard, valued at a year's wages, we're told. A year's wages. So you can just make that whatever your year's wage is. If you can picture yourself worshiping in that manner. And in the most lavish lavish act of worship that Mary could imagine, she pours this treasure out on Christ. And the Lord tells us it's in preparation of His burial. Now as we come to our text for today, we see a shift in the ministry of Yeshua. Up to this point, Yeshua has mostly kept veiled His identity as Messiah. As scholars call this, the Messianic secret. And because every time the Lord does something miraculous, He looks to the people and He says, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Keep it to yourself. I mean, for instance, since we see uh, when a demon proclaimed Him to be the Holy One of God, He told him to be quiet. We see it in Mark 1. What have you to do with us, Yeshua of Nazareth? This is a demon speaking. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. This is the demon saying this. You're the Holy One of God. But Yeshua rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. So when he healed people, Yeshua commanded them, don't tell people this. Even when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders that no one should know about it. When Peter made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord warned him, don't tell people. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord glows literally, He tells them, listen, you guys keep this to yourself. Don't tell people about this. And that seems strange. I mean, wouldn't you think that since he came to present himself as the Messianic king, that when he performed these things, he would tell people, go tell everybody. Tell them that the Messiah is here. But he didn't. He said, keep it quiet. And the reason for that, I think, because their concept of Messiah was wrong. See, they thought of a king as simply a great prophetic figure who would, you know, come to their deliverance that would set them free from Rome. Set up his earthly kingdom as Solomon and David had done. That was their concept of Messiah. So in our text for this morning, things change. Here Yeshua presents Himself as the Messianic King. And from our study of the fourth Gospel up to this point, you probably remember the expression that we've seen many, many times. The Lord said, My hour has not yet come. We've heard that, right? He says it in 2.24, My hour has not yet come. We see it again, 7.30, His hour had not yet come. And again, in 8.20, because His hour had not yet come. Well, things change here. You know why? Because His hour had come. As 12.23 says, My hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's why things change here. From the resurrection of Lazarus on, Yeshua deliberately provoked the Jewish leaders. Now, He has always really provoked them. You know, He did things just to get them provoked, but it really steps it up here 
with the resurrection of Lazarus. They wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to kill him at Passover because they said there'll be a riot from the people. But the scripture had to be fulfilled. Yeshua needed to die as the Passover lamb for his people, and he needed to do that on the Passover, on the 14th of Nisan. And that's exactly what happened. Let's look at our text. He says in 12.12, The next day, the large crowd that had come from the feast heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the next day. Now, pay attention here because I'm going to make a change from last week, all right? I believe this is the 10th of Nisan. Now, last week I said that the dinner for Yeshua took place on the 8th. But after looking at this a little bit more, I think the dinner probably took place on the 9th. This is the next day. This is the 10th. That'll become important later. So just kind of store that away. On the next day, he says, a large crowd. You know, this crowd had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And this would no doubt include many pilgrims from Galilee where Yeshua had His greatest following. And they hear that Yeshua is coming to the feast, and so they head out to meet Him. This crowd is at Jerusalem. They hear, hey, Yeshua's here. He's in Bethany. Let's go. And so the crowd is moving from Jerusalem toward Bethany. They had come there that says, for the feast. This is the feast of Passover. Now, Josephus describes one Passover just before the Jewish war when he says 2,700,000 people took part. Not counting the defiled and the foreigners who were present in the city. Jeremiah says that that estimate of the size of the Passover crowd Range from 180,000 on the low end to 3 million on the upper end. You know, even if these numbers are inflated, the crowds were undoubtedly immense because Jerusalem was normally 25,000. So if we just take the low number, your population, you know, is eight times greater now. That's the lowest number. So this place is packed. Now, to understand how jam-packed Jerusalem would have been during this Passover period, I think we could compare it to New Orleans and Mardi Gras. I don't know if you've ever been to Mardi Gras. I've been there once because the Navy made me go. Yes, our ship went to Mardi Gras for a PR thing. And I had no plans to leave the ship, but I did because everyone said, you got to see this. So I'm out there in Mardi Gras. From building to cross the street to building, it was solid people. I mean, I promise you could just lift your feet up in the crowd and you just keep going, okay? That's a, the whole time I had my thumb over my wallet on my back pocket and my hand on it because I'm thinking this is a place to get your wallet taken. I mean, it was just incredible amount of people. I've never seen crowds like that. So if you've ever been there, that's the idea. I mean, Jerusalem is just slammed full of people. Now, the pilgrims from Jerusalem, having heard of this remarkable miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus, and having heard that he who performed it is nearby, they go out to meet him. They say, we've got to go meet this rabbi who raises the dead. And we need to understand that Passover celebrated a time of deliverance. Remember, the original Passover was this time of deliverance. They're they're being delivered from Egypt. So the atmosphere during these Passovers was literally white hot with expectation. It would be hard for us to grasp the mood of many at this moment in history because there's just this messianic 
expectation that's running high as Israel longed for deliverance from Rome. And so as they celebrate this, that's what this is all about. So in the midst of this expectancy, in the midst of this excitement, there's this Yeshua, this rabbi who's raising the dead. Everyone's talking about Him. Everybody had heard about this. He's performing incredible miracles. Could He be the One? Is this the Messiah that God had promised for our nation? Could this be the time when we'll revolt against Rome and evict them? Verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So these crowds are coming out and they've got palm branches with them. Now this is the only Gospel to mention the palm branches. This is where the church gets Palm Sunday from. Okay? So now when you go to some churches, they give you a little palm branch and that's, I don't know what that does for you anyway. Okay, Never really got into that stuff. All right, But this is where they get it from. He's riding into Jerusalem and all the people have the palm branches. Palm branches were used when they would sing the Hallel. Those are Psalms 113-18. to When they sing that, they would use the palm branches. Uh, This was traditionally, these hymns were traditionally sung during the Feast of Tabernacles, during Hanukkah, and sometimes at Passover. The waving of the date palm fronds had become a common practice at national celebrations. Like, these different feasts, Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23.40 talks about that. Palm branches were waved when a previous Jewish fighter, Simon the Maccabee, had driven out occupying Syrian forces. So in other words, palm fronds had become a symbol of nationalistic hope. So they're waving these palm fronds saying, hey, this is a time of deliverance. Look at 1 Maccabees 13.51. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So this is a nationalistic celebration. So they're coming out with these palm branches, and they're singing, this is awesome. Here is our deliverer. Intertestamental literature connected the waving of palm branches with the coming of Messiah. And it's interesting that palm branches appeared on the coins that the Jewish nationalists produced during the war with Rome from AD 66 to 70. So in our text in John, the people's use of palm fronds probably signaled the popular belief that Israel's Messiah had finally appeared. This is it. I mean, they believe this is, grab these palm fronds, let's get out there, let's celebrate. And so they're singing, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in times like this, I missed the New American Standard. In case you haven't noticed, I switched a few weeks ago to ESV. But times like this, I miss it. You know why? Right. We don't know this is a quote, right? See, the New American puts it, blessed is he who comes in. It's in all caps. They're telling you this is a quote from the Tanakh. But they messed up a little on the quote here because they don't have Hosanna in caps. This is a quotation from Psalm 118, 
25 and 26. Psalm 118 is a passage sung at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's considered to be a messianic psalm. The Jews understood this psalm to refer to the coming Messiah who would rescue His people. So this crowd that we see in our text is identifying Yeshua as the conquering hero that they had been looking for throughout the years. And just so we don't miss the point, they add, even the king of Israel, which is not in the text of Psalm 118, but is a clear identification that they regarded the one who comes in the name of the Lord as the king who would deliver his people. Let's look at Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Now, do you see the word Hosanna in these verses? You don't see it? It's right there. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray is from the Hebrew Yasha which means save us, and the word ana, which means we pray. Now, unlike its use today in many choruses in the Christian church, this is, Hosanna is not an expression of praise. It is a cry for help. Save us now is their cry. Save us! That's the Hebrew phrase, yasha ana. Literally, save us now! That's what they're crying out. So as Yeshua is riding along the road, the crowds are shouting, Save us! Save us now! Save them from what? Were they on their knees saying, Lord, we need redemption? No! They wanted salvation from Rome. That's what they're crying for. They're under oppression. Deliver us from Rome! Now, Yeshua had salvation to offer. But it was a different kind of salvation than these Jews expected. And they didn't really want the salvation He came to offer. He came to deliver His people from their sins. They wanted deliverance from Rome. So His salvation is, runs much deeper than that they're asking for. Now, how do we know that these verses in Psalm 118 are talking about Yeshua? Well, like any quotation from the Tanakh, the entire context has to be borne in mind. And we have to understand this. When we see in the New Testament, uh, you know, Yeshua or one of the apostles or somebody quoting something from the Tanakh, you know, they quote a verse, go back there and look at the context. They expected the people that they were talking to to know the context. They didn't just yank a verse out. They expect them. You've got to understand this context. And so we have to understand the context here. Verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's that talking about? Yeshua. How do we know that? How do we know that Yeshua is the stone? The New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us, right? Peter said, this Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You know, Peter added something to that text when he quoted it. He added to, by you. Speaking of the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, he made it very personal. You know, he says, 
The stone that was rejected, then he adds, by you, you people standing right here, the builders has become the chief cornerstone. You know, if anybody ought to know what stone is a good stone, it should be the builder, shouldn't it? But they look at this Galilean rabbi and they think he's just in the way. A stone to be rejected, a stone to be cast aside. What they don't realize is this stone is the foundation stone for God's covenant people. And they reject him. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And then we see it in verse 13, comes in the name of Yahweh. What, what do they mean he's coming in the name of Yahweh? Well, we've gone over this a lot of times. A name is not just, you know, Yahweh, as John, Bill. N- name for the Hebrews has to do with the person they're talking about. The character of their person. You, Yeshua comes as a representation of the divine person. As he says, and that's why Yeshua over and over and John says, I am. I am. And I've got, you know, I've recently got a man who's writing me and telling me, well, I think you're wrong. I don't think Yeshua is God. And I wrote him back, that's not even up for option, okay? In John 8, 24, Yeshua says this, and this is important, people, get this. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Okay? So if you don't believe He is God, that's a problem there. Because he's made it really clear in this gospel. Over and over, he claims to be the divine I am. So he's saying, I am. This is exactly what Yeshua has been claiming. He was sent by God. He's a representative of Yahweh. He says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In chapter 6 alone, he says this eight times. I have come from heaven. Look at the next verse in the psalm. Verse 27. Yahweh is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. He has made His light to shine upon us. This is what Yeshua declared Himself to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, I'm the light of the world. And this is a messianic psalm. It's claiming Him. Verse 28. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. It's not likely that Lazarus failed to appreciate the meaning of the crowd meeting Yeshua with the words of a prayer from the Tanakh that is addressed to Yahweh. They're recognized this is the Messiah. But they, the wrong one, but that's this song. It's claiming this is God. So Yeshua is headed to Jerusalem and thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are coming out yelling, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Think for a minute how the disciples feel at this point. Do you remember back in John 11? They said, uh, Yeshua said, Lazarus is sick, so we need to go there. Remember, we need to go. In the next verse, the disciples said, why are you going? They didn't want to go. Why? Because they, they're trying to kill Him in Jerusalem. You go ahead and go back. We're not going back there. They want to kill you. So obviously when they're there this time, there's a fear of this. They understand this. Well, now they're there and all of a sudden, 
everybody's coming out praising Yeshua. They're like, wow, this is weird. And they got to be thinking, hey, if he's a king, guess what? We're on the king's court. We're part of this, man. I mean, it's exciting. It had to be exciting for them. They're used to running. Not anymore. He's riding in and the crowds are praising him. Throwing down their clothes. Waving the palm fronds. This is a different experience for them. Now verses 14 and 15 said, And Yeshua found a young donkey, and He sat on it. Just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The, the, don- the synoptics you know, give us a lot more detail about this donkey, but this is the started the ride, okay? It's not later on He picks this up. John's a little bit you know, gives us the idea he's heading for Jerusalem before he got this. But uh, let's read one of the synoptics here. Uh, Matthew 21 says this, saying to them, "Go in, Yeshua's talking to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied up. So he says, go there, you find this donkey, and a colt with her. So you find a donkey and the colt, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say to them, the Lord needs them. And He will send them at once. Okay, so you get the picture. They're going in, getting the donkey, bringing them back. i got to tell you this story. I remember watching, I think I guess it was 700 Club years ago, and people were talking about life verses. you got to have a life verse. you got to have a life verse. So this guy said, well, I'm going to pick my life verse. And he opened the Bible, and he just put his finger on it. That's my life verse. The Lord has need of them. He says, I claim that that's me. The Lord has need of me. <laughs> and the host says, well, you know that's talking about a donkey, right? <laughs> that's okay, that didn't bother him. All right. Well, Mark adds to what Matthew had to say, you'll find a colt tied which has, no one has ever sat. So this is an unbroken colt, never been ridden, that they're bringing. Now the word translated colt here is the Greek polos, and it means a young animal of any kind, from an elephant to a locust. It just means young. Here it's referring to the colt of a foal, a donkey. Mark, in his text, doesn't even mention that it was a donkey. He just says, a foal. Let me give you a little donkeyology. Okay? Make sure you write this down. This is important. Donkeyology. Alright? The donkey was domesticated in Mesopotamia by the 3rd millennium B.C. It was used as a beast of burden from the patriarchal period. It was renowned for its strength and was the animal normally ridden by non-military personnel. The Scriptures indicate that riding a donkey is not at all beneath the dignity of Israel's noblemen and kings. As a matter of fact, David indicates his choice of Solomon to be king by decreeing that the young man should ride on the king's own mule. 1 Kings one thirty three, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. So, Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem is literally a reenactment of King Solomon's triumphal ride into the city of Jerusalem. And ironically illustrated his role as both the promised Davidic king and the sacrificial lamb. Alright, it's to be a young donkey. Now, let me ask you this. Why did Yeshua want a colt of a donkey? I mean, this isn't the case where Yeshua all of a sudden got tired and said, you know, I'm sick of walking all over the place. 
Go find me something to ride on, all right? I'm tired of this. Throughout his ministry, he always walked. To my knowledge, this is the first time we ever see Yeshua riding an animal anywhere. He's always walking everywhere. So why the donkey? Why did he want to ride into Jerusalem? Okay, he is fulfilling prophecy. All right? He's fulfilling prophecy as the Messiah. Look at what the text says. Just as it is written. That's why he did it, because it's written that way. Matthew put it this way in his text. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So what's happening here is very intentional. It's very calculated. Yeshua is riding the foal of a donkey to fulfill prophecy. It's the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now I want you to remember What's going on here is in Jerusalem. These people knew the Scriptures. They spent all their time not watching TV, not playing video games, memorizing the Word. They knew what Zechariah said. So in this whole context of what's going on there, they knew the Scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This has got to be in their mind as this is happening. Zechariah is one of the three post-exile prophets. He wrote, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the 70 years, after the people came back from Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. Our text in John says, Fear not, O daughter. These words are not found in Hebrew or in any version of Zechariah 9.9. You notice Zechariah says rejoice greatly. So there's a lot of debate over why this difference here. Well, it is thought that these verses rejoice so greatly are drawn from Isaiah 40 verse 9 where they address the one who brings good tidings to Zion. You say, well, that's weird, isn't it? Not at all. It's not uncommon for New Testament quotations from the Tanakh to derive from two or more passages. I mean, they take this this part of the Scripture, this part, this, and they put it together, and you say, are they allowed to do that? Well, they're doing it under the inspiration of God, so yeah. Okay, so just because it's not in that same place, they have a reason for doing this. Sometimes we have trouble figuring out what that is, but they have a reason for doing that. Daughter of Zion is used as a synonym for Jerusalem and their people. Now, the people had returned from exile to Jerusalem. I mean, they'd been in captivity for the 70 years. Now they're coming back. But when they came back, their heads are hanging low because of all that had taken place. And the prophet sets their mind on God's promised deliverance. That's what's happening here. He's trying to encourage these people. It would not come with the might of Nebuchadnezzar or an Alexander the Great, but it's going to come in gentleness and humility. See, normally when a king rode in, he rode in on a stallion, a war horse, not on a donkey. I mean, just think about all the conquering kings of history. Who among them came on a donkey riding in humility like this? Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's not of its pride and the vainglory of the world. And that's what this king is demonstrating. You know, that should have given him a little clue right there, but this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. 
The rabbis had a real problem with this verse in Zechariah. Can you understand why? Uh, we don't want our king coming in on a donkey. He needs to come in on a stallion, a war horse, you know, tearing this place up. They saw the single advent of Messiah as an advent of triumph and victory. He's coming back. He's going to be victorious. They didn't know, understand the two advents. They just saw him coming once. This is how he's doing it. So how would it be that the king would enter Jerusalem in such a lowly manner? Eventually, the rabbis reconciled this by stating in the Babylonian Talmud. You've got to listen to this quote from the Talmud. If Israel was worthy, the Messiah would come on the clouds of heaven. If they were not worthy, lowly and riding on an ass. How prophetic is that? Huh? They certainly weren't worthy. So he did come on a donkey, but guess what? He also came on the clouds of heaven 40 years later, but not as they expected. He came on the clouds to destroy Jerusalem because of their sin. Now, is the king only coming for the daughter of Zion, for Israel? Listen to the next verse in Zechariah. They didn't like this verse either. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. This guy in a donkey's cutting off the war horses, okay? And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, the nations there, not just Israel, peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Now, the Old Covenant context makes it clear that this king came with a different focus than the 43 kings of Israel and Judah. They came to rule over a particular geographical realm that were limited by the spoils of war. Christ comes to bring peace to the Gentiles and His dominion is from sea to sea. Now, what's really interesting in our text in John is the very next verses outside of our paragraph talk about the coming of the Gentiles. So this is all connected. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Zechariah 9.11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Alright, here the blood of the covenant suggests the blood of the new covenant. And the prisoners are set free from a waterless pit, just as Yeshua had been offering the living water over and over. Now, from comparing the Gospels, we learn that the two chosen disciples entered a small settlement not far from Bethany. As they entered, they find this colt tethered outside the home. They need to bring that colt back to Bethany to Yeshua. This is a fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy about Judah. On his deathbed, Jacob, who God renamed Israel, prophesies for his fourth son Judah. And he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes. Now that's an interesting way. I just discovered this this past week in the ESV. Translate Shiloh as tribute there. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So binding the foal there to the vine. is We see this, this, this prophecy is being fulfilled. The Jews saw this passage as fulfilled in David of Bethlehem, the first king of Israel, the tribe of Judah. 
But the prophecy was only imperfectly fulfilled in David. It was perfectly fulfilled in Yeshua. The Hebrew here is Shiloh, and this obscure word is variously interpreted to mean the sent one, the seed, the peaceable or prosperous one, all referring to the Messiah. As I said, the ESV here has tribute. But Shiloh literally means he whose right it is. And it's a title anciently understood for the Messiah. All right, Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem at Passover time was his statement that he is coming to Jerusalem as a king. The whole idea of it being on a donkey that no one has ever ridden on is the idea of his exalted position, his sovereignty. He's going to enter the city declaring himself to be king. Now, Lazarus doesn't tell us this, but Matthew tells us that he entered the city and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and saying, who is this? The whole city stirred. The word he uses here is from seismic. In other words, it's like an earthquake. The whole place is shaking with excitement because they think our deliverers finally showed up. Now, how many days before Passover did this take place? Well, based on John 12.1 and 12.12, this happened five days before Passover. What did the people do five days before Passover on the first Passover? What did they do on the 10th? This is the day, according to the law, that they chose a lamb for sacrifice. So it's no coincidence, but divine providence that Yeshua rides in Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, the very day Israel is choosing their lamb to be slaughtered. Yeshua identified as the Lamb of God by John the Baptizer, who takes away the sin of the world. He's now coming into the holy city of Jerusalem on the very day the perfect victims are chosen. He's the chosen male. He's the sacrificial vis- victim, visible for all to judge. See, they're to bring that lamb in the home and they're to examine it for the four days. Well, guess what? This is what happens to Yeshua comes into Jerusalem and He's examined for this time. You remember earlier where Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas chose this lamb to die. Look at verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. Oh, really? They never got it. They just didn't get it. But when Yeshua was glorified, then they remembered. And after the resurrection, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember he said that. That stuff's been written about him. This is another note, basically, verse 16, by Lazarus to inform us they just didn't get it till after the resurrection. They're scratching their heads. We saw this earlier in uh, 2.22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said, oh yeah, that's right, remember he said that to us? The turning point in their understanding took place when he was raised from the dead. Our text says when Yeshua was glorified, they're saying the same thing. When he was glorified, when he was raised from the dead, they got it. Verse 17 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now the crowd. This is the second crowd in our text. All right, The first crowd is in Jerusalem coming out to meet him. This crowd is coming with him from Bethany. 
In verse 12, we have the large crowd that was coming out of Jerusalem to see him. Now we got this other crowd. So there's two crowds, and Matthew and Mark both talk about that. They say there was a crowd in front and a crowd behind. Huge crowds of people surrounding the Lord, and they continued to bear witness. What they're talking about is the resurrection of Lazarus. They're still talking about this. This tells us that it was the news of Lazarus' resurrection that caused the crowd in verse 12 to come out to meet him. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees' determination to excommunicate anyone who acknowledges you as Messiah in chapter 9, verse 23, and their orders that anyone knowing Yeshua's whereabouts should report him so that they could arrest him in 1157, haven't stopped the crowds a bit. They're going after him. This paragraph ends with another example of Lazarus' irony. The world has gone after him. Okay. They're exaggerating. That's hyperbole. All right. But they are saying, it seems like everybody's following him. They're talking about all these crowds. You know, they're going after Yeshua. But here's what we have to understand the word world here, cosmos, in this gospel is used in a very specific way. And I think understanding the context means going all the way back to John 3.16. In John 3, Yeshua is speaking to Lazarus, who is a Jew, and the Jews believe that God loved only them. So Nicodemus had the idea that when Messiah came, He would come to give the kingdom to the Jews and submit the Gentiles to judgment. This was their doctrine. The doctrine was Jews would be saved, anybody connected with Abraham would be saved, the Gentiles would be judged. Well, John 3.16 is saying in the context that God's love is international in scope. God so loved the world, meaning not just you Jews. He loves Gentiles also. So when Lazarus says, for God so loved the world, it also embraces Gentiles. And look at the next verse in the text. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So he just, you know, he throws in this, the world's gone after him. And he goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, you're right, because look at here comes the Gentiles. The whole world, not just Jews. Now we see the Gentiles coming in. We'll look at those verses next week. But I want to add here what Luke had to say about this entry into Jerusalem. Because I thought it's, it, it's, it's a sorrowful cry, really. The king's lamentation over Jerusalem. As he rides in, it says, And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it. He's brokenhearted as he looks at this city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. These amazing words were literally fulfilled 40 years later, when the Roman legions under Titus came in. Titus, they say, appeared with 80,000 men. They laid siege to the city. After several initial assaults and the Jews' refusal to surrender, Titus built a wall all the way around the city. 
another wall. So you got Jerusalem's wall, and then you got a space, and then you got another wall. That way they couldn't get any supplies in. His idea was, I'll starve you to death. Okay, while they're fighting the Romans, inside Jerusalem, there's a civil war going place. Taking on, taking place. So they're fighting, they're killing each other while the Romans are waiting to kill them. They got no food, they start killing each other. Women are eating their own children. This is a horrible, horrible scene. Finally, they destroy the city. Uh, they said, you know, they did a good job of keeping any food from getting in that city. People who were trying to escape, they said... They were crucifying on the outside of the city probably 500 Jews a day they were trying to escape from the city. I mean, there's some accounts that say they cut down every wood, every tree they could find because they were using them all to crucify these people. Famine hit hard. People were dying. They said there were so many dead bodies and the people were so exhausted from burial that they finally just started throwing the dead over the wall. And finally, in August of AD 70, the city and the temple were destroyed. The Jewish historian Josephus tells that 97,000 people were taken captive. 1,100,000 people were killed during the siege. There were multitudes there because they were there for the feast. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. They gathered for the feast. When Rome Rome comes to attack them, what do you do? Well, naturally you run into Jerusalem because it's a fort. It's a great place. No, it's not. It's your death. That's why the Lord says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills. Get out of there. This was a horrible end. It was a tragic end of Jerusalem. But this is what Yeshua foresaw as the judgment of God for a people who were blind. Yeshua said it came because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. They had missed their day. They had not received Yeshua for who He was. Their hearts were hardened. And Yeshua's heart was broken over this. That's why I said I, I have a trouble understanding this as a triumphal entry. Pretty tragic. The Lord's sitting there weeping over the city, knowing that its judgment is coming. Now, if I want, I want to right now, if I can, to show you something that I see practical in this text. Okay? Practical to us in our everyday lives. I talked to you earlier about what they call the messianic secret. Let me ask you this. Does Yeshua's earlier attitude of secrecy Teach us anything about sovereignty and responsibility. You know, I find that people have a hard time reconciling these two things. Well, if God is sovereign, He's going to do what He do, and i got nothing to do with it. And other people say, well, I'm responsible. We, we bear responsibility. You know, they're both true. Did Yeshua know He was going to the cross? It was God's will, right? It could not be stopped. And yet Yeshua uses human means to keep the secret to the proper time. He even leaves different places. And you know, you've got to be scratching your head saying, why are you running? They can't kill you till it's time. But you see, He used normal means, right? We know that God is sovereign over everything that happens. At least I do. I hope you do. Nothing happens outside the sovereign will of God. If it did, oh, how terrifying life would be. He controls, according to the Scripture, plants, animals, men, weather, nations, nature. God controls everything that happens. He is absolutely sovereign. If He didn't control everything that happened, God would always be scrambling. Oh, that I didn't know He would do that. Now i got to do this. So this will, you know, oh my word. It'd be difficult. 
But we're so prone to twist or misuse the truth we find in Scripture, I think that we need to discuss the danger of misusing the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's a tendency of some individuals to see the doctrine of sovereignty as fatalism. The fatalist would say, God's going to do what He wants to do, so I'm not going to be worried about it. You know, if there's a storm coming, let's say we got a hurricane, we got a Cat 5 coming. They say it's going to be a direct hit on Virginia Beach. You say, well, God's sovereign. He'll do what He wants to do. I'm just going to sit home and watch the news until the TV goes off. Uh, the smart person would, you know, say, okay, the storm's coming. Let me make plans. Let me store up. Let me get batteries. Let me get water. Maybe let me get out of town. Do whatever. The whole time praying for wisdom as they prepare for things. See, God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to act wisely. Acting wisely in this context means that we use all legitimate biblical means at our disposal to avoid harm to ourselves or others. We've got to prepare. You can't just lay back, well, God's sovereign. And I think David gives us a good illustration of acting wisely when David fled from Saul. Saul was determined to kill David. So David knew. He knew this. He was very aware of it. And David did everything he could to avoid Saul, didn't he? Well, here's what's interesting. David had already been anointed king to succeed Saul. David knew that the sovereign God would carry out his purposes. Psalm 57.2 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. David knew God ordained him as king. He was going to be king. Yet David didn't sit down and say, Saul can't hurt me. I'm the next king. God ordained I be king, so I can't be king if I'm dead. So obviously, he can't hurt me. No, David fled from Saul and he took every precaution that he could so Saul wouldn't kill him. He didn't pursue, presume upon the sovereignty of God, but he acted wisely in dependence upon God to bless those efforts. He ran from Saul and he prayed to God. It's just wisdom. You use wisdom. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes 10.18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the house leaks. So what does that mean? Well, the house is not said to decay because of God's sovereign plan. It's God's sovereignty, the house falls apart. No, it says because of man's laziness. If a student fails an exam because they didn't study, they say, well, God was God's sovereign will that I didn't pass. No, you're an idiot. You're supposed to study. God is sovereign over everything that happens in life, but we are still responsible. Listen, I know that God has ordained the day of my death just as the day of my birth. There's no doubt about it. I know that. I don't know when it is. But I still act responsibly in the sense I'm not trying to kill myself, okay? I try to maintain a healthy diet, so, you know, I apply the, why? Why don't we just say, let's do whatever we want because we can't die ahead of time. Well, if you walk out in front of a semi going 55 miles an hour, that's the day of your death. God had sovereignly ordained it. But you're responsible for being dumb for walking out in front of it also. All right? So, you know, this is not something we can figure out. But just from looking at Scripture, you see God is sovereign. There's no doubt about that. But yet we are responsible. So don't ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse for your failure to use wisdom. 
Hosanna! This crowd is yelling out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Hosanna is not a thing of praise. It's a cry for help. Now, let me wrap this up by putting all four of these gospel accounts together to try to give you the picture of what's going on here. Yeshua leaves Bethany, headed for Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. He had, he had already sent two of his disciples ahead of him to procure this donkey and bring it to him. And this is fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, although the disciples didn't understand it at that time, of course. As Yeshua approaches Jerusalem, he's riding in on this colt. A crowd follows Yeshua from Bethany. Another crowd comes out from Jerusalem to greet him. Both crowds accompany him into the city, spreading their cloaks, cutting branches, uh, throwing branches on the road before him. The crowds call out an expression of desperation, Save us now! And they're calling Yeshua the King of Israel. The commotion is in this celebration reaches the ears of everyone in Jerusalem and, and the city is just poured out to meet their Savior. Some of the Pharisees becoming indignant that Yeshua instruct the people, tell them to be quiet. The Pharisees are telling Yeshua and Yeshua says no. He refuses. You know what he says? He says if I told them to be quiet, the stones would cry out. That's Luke chapter 19. As Yeshua looks upon the city of Jerusalem, he weeps, knowing that the reception of him is superficial and momentary. And the day of Israel's destruction is imminent. This entry in Jerusalem is not a triumphal, but a tragic entry. Because the initial reception was based on a false view of who he was. He came to save them from their sin, not from Rome. As Yeshua approaches the city, he cries knowing they're going to reject Him, and thus that they'll be judged. So this entry is tragic. It's tragic. Because they're accepting Him not as who He is. They believed in Him as a political deliverer. But again, as Yeshua said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your grace to us. Lord, it's an incredible picture for us to see the Lord riding in and the people just screaming in praise and adoration with the whole wrong view the whole time. Lord, I pray that we, your people, would have a correct view of Yeshua as God come in the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for this text. May we learn from it. Father, I pray that your sovereignty would never be an excuse in our lives to not act responsibly. Give us wisdom, Lord, we pray. Amen.